Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome to those of you that are joining online as well. We do a pretty good job of balancing the sound for those of you at home, but it's not the same as being here. So I just encourage you again to make the trip out to church if you're in the area. It doesn't sound quite the same coming through your little smart TV speakers as it does here. Um, This morning, last week, we talked about Ruth and the redemptive plan as shown in Ruth and Boaz. And this morning, I want to talk about Mary. And it's strangely difficult to write about Mary, the mother of Jesus. Um, As a Protestant, historically, of course, we tend to shy away from Mary just instinctively because of some of the excesses that other branches of the church have put on Mary. And so, as a good Reformed pastor, Mary just kind of slides off of my consciousness a little bit. Um, But in addition to that, in Scripture, her proximity to the history-altering arrival of the Son of God into creation is a significant distraction as well. Um, All of the accounts of Mary obviously revolve around Jesus, and our attention is very rightly placed on Jesus We don't worship Mary. Our hope is not in Mary. Uh, All of creation was not waiting for the arrival of Mary, but for Jesus. And so he's rightly at the center of all of those descriptions. But in addition to that, whenever Mary is present in the scripture or whenever Mary speaks, she deflects attention away from herself and towards God. Whenever the attention of God in Scripture is actually on Mary in his word, she returns the attention back to God. So it's hard to write about Mary. But with careful reading, there's a fair bit we can learn about who Mary was, and by knowing Mary, we can be instructed by her faith. And so what the Spirit has preserved for us to know about Mary in the Gospels reveals a young woman with an insightful and intelligent faith in the promises of God and his mercy. And so to see what the Word of God has to say about Mary, it might be especially relevant today. In a world where so many teenagers, especially young women, are experiencing a crisis of identity, a crisis of significance, a crisis of hope, Mary stands out in Scripture as an example of finding all three of those things and more in the person and promises of Jesus. And so we ask ourselves this morning, what do the Gospels tell us of Mary, and what has the Holy Spirit preserved for us that we might learn from Mary? Because she is there, her words are preserved for us, and they're there for our instruction. Uh, So this morning, as we consider the child in the manger, let's consider Mary and what she teaches us about her Lord. And I'll pray before we begin. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank thank you for these words, especially of Luke chapter 1, which is where we're going to be, that you've preserved them for us, that you have recorded this song of Mary's, the Magnificat, um, with, with great intention that it communicates to us the heart of Mary and what we can learn from Mary and her faith. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, so like Ruth, who we considered last week, Mary's biolog- biographical details are relatively simple and relatively unremarkable. Um, if you're in Luke chapter 1, which is where we're going to spend most of our time this morning, uh, in verses 26 to 27, Luke tells us that Mary lived in a northern city uh, called Nazareth in Galilee. Um, it was almost in the middle of nowhere, uh, seriously, pretty much like Halliburton, uh, 
We know from other Gospels that Nazareth was completely unremarkable and was scoffed at as a city that could possibly be noteworthy. Um, when Philip tells Nathaniel that, that Nazareth is the hometown of Jesus, uh, Nathaniel says, can anything good come from Nazareth? Uh, that's rhetorical. No, nothing good ever comes from Nazareth. And then later on in the Gospel of John, the Pharisees are skeptical of Jesus' credentials uh, because they say, search the scriptures and discover that no prophet has ever come from Galilee. So this is a part of Israel and a town in that part of Israel that is completely unremarkable. Nothing good comes from there, and it's obvious that no prophet has ever arrived from that part of the world. Luke says Mary was a virgin or a young maiden. She's probably 14 or 15 years old, never married, and engaged to a man named Joseph. Probably the most significant aspect of Mary's biography would be that, like Joseph, she's part of the tribe of Judah, and especially she was among the descendants of King David and in the promised line of the Messiah. But the reality is this is hundreds of years later, and from David's offspring, there would be hundreds of and hundreds of young women who would be in some way a descendant of David. So it's notable, but not necessarily remarkable. And neither her nor Joseph were too close to the royal line because they were very poor. We discover that as well. Mary says in that song that we just heard read that God looked on her humble position. And in Luke chapter 2, when Joseph and Mary bring Jesus to be presented at the temple... Their sacrifice of dedication is not a lamb, as is normally preferred, but is in fact the alternative offering that God allowed for the poor of just two pigeons. So Mary is poor, and she's from a poor town in a poor part of Israel, and unremarkable. By worldly standards, she was barely noticeable. A teenager in a poor family in a poor town of no particular religious or traditional significance to her people. So she was not unlike thousands of other teenage Israelite young women just living out their day-to-day lives in Israel at the time. In social status, all of them were virtually invisible to the people around them. And maybe as we just think about the biography of Mary a little bit there, that might sound kind of familiar description of you today, or maybe of you in the time of your youth when you were at high school Nobody special, nobody remarkable, virtually invisible to everybody around you. It seems like your life is pretty much planned out. You get normal grades, you put in your hours at work, you do as you're told, and it seems highly unlikely that God would take any notice of you, let alone have a plan for your life, let alone that God would want to personally know you and intersect your life and make changes in it for his glory and for your good. And you tend to think that if you're going to find any significance in this life, you are going to have to find significance on your own terms. You're going to have to create it as a YouTube influencer or as a singer or as a dancer or as a hockey player, as an intellectual, a politician, something, anything. If you're going to be significant, you've got to take matters into your hands. God clearly is not doing anything to take special notice of plain old you in backwater Halliburton. But God is not concerned with anything that the world considers significant. God has Mary in his mind. And in fact, God, just like all of us, has had Mary in his mind since before the foundations of the world, we read in Ephesians 1.4. God 
chose us in Jesus before the foundation of the world. So we may think we're insignificant. We may think that we are off the map. We may think that we are overlooked. But God has had you in his mind since before the world was created. And in Mary's response to God's call, we have an example for ourselves. So God intersects Mary's life. We see this in Luke 1, 26 to 28. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph in the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. Well, we started out talking about Mary's kind of biological context. We should pause here and consider the theological context. When Gabriel shows up, first to Zechariah and then to Mary, you have to remember at this point in the history of Israel, um, God has not spoken to his people for 400 years. There's been 400 years of radio silence from God since the prophet Malachi last conveyed his words. The last sentence of Malachi chapter 4 being that God would send a prophet like Elijah to arrive before the day of the Lord. And after that final word, literally that final sentence from Malachi, there's 400 years that go by. Think about 400 years. How old's Canada? Does any students here know how old Canada is right now? 200 and... What is it? 200 and... 156, not even 200 yet. I thought, we were like, I thought we had made it past 200. I guess not with the Confederation and everybody all together, right? Yeah, so, like, so imagine 400 years where Israel has heard nothing from God. And they have worshipped at the temple. The rabbis have been teaching scripture. The children have been learning and reciting the Shema every day. They rehearse and they remember the promises made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They observe the Passover and all the other feasts. But for 400 years, God says nothing. And then God suddenly speaks. A messenger angel appears twice in six months, first to a priest in the temple in Jerusalem, Zechariah. We read that in Luke 1.11. To whom he reveals to Zechariah that his barren wife, Elizabeth, will have a child who is filled with the spirit of Elijah. That's going to be John the Baptist. And the angel quotes to Zechariah almost verbatim the last sentence that Malachi wrote in chapter 4. Just in case maybe in 400 years the priest had forgotten the last thing that God had said. And then secondly, the angel appears... Very interestingly, geographically and theologically and positionally, about as far from the temple in Jerusalem as he could possibly appear. From the, from the center of worship at the temple in Jerusalem, the angel then appears to Mary in Nazareth. As far away from Jerusalem and as far away from the center of religious and historical significance as possible. Our teenager Mary receives a visit from Gabriel. And the priest, we should notice, God made mute at the time, unable to speak. And we find out later, also deaf. As if to say, you're not going to be the first one to worship me. Mary gets to sing first. You'll get your turn to sing after John is born. But you don't say anything until Mary does. So, of course, the message of Gabriel is what the world's been waiting for since the beginning. And behold... 
You will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, and he will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, and therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God." Now, when we read these words, we rightly process them in the context of God's redemptive plan for the world. The center of attention here is that Jesus is coming. And we resonate with the impact of those words in their impact all over creation and their impact on us personally. This is our Savior. This is Mary's Savior. This is Elizabeth's Savior. This is the Savior of the world that has come. The eternal King has come to the throne of David. The kingdom of God is broken into the world, and this new kingdom, as it is established in the throne of Jesus, will never end. And the call of God on Mary's life is of such holy significance that it really does overshadow everything else, and it should overshadow everything else. But we're also looking today and learning what Scripture tells us about Mary, and neither the angel nor the gospels forget Mary or her response. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And even as you hear that sentence, and you just heard that sermon last week about Ruth, it may have echoes of Ruth in your mind, where Ruth said to Boaz, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And so, I am your servant, overshadow me, spread your wing over me, cover me. This is the response of these women. This is the response of Mary. And it's now that we begin to see Mary personally, and not just as a demographic, not just as a statistic in Israel, not just a teenage girl from a northern town. Uh, you know, this is now Mary, whose personal response to God's sudden, unexpected, and profound call on her life is, I am a servant of the Lord. Let it be done to me according to your word. Would that, would that be your response? <laughs> Let alone a teenage girl from northern Israel when the first angel in 400 years shows up and says, by the way, you're going to bear the Son of God. And she says, let it be done according to your word. I'm your servant. Now, there's certainly not a lot of people in the world who can relate to Mary at this point in her life. There's not many shared experiences around her. But she certainly heard of her cousin Elizabeth who was barren her whole life but is now able to conceive after the prophecy to Zechariah. So Mary naturally goes to visit Elizabeth. Everyone else may be scandalized about what has happened to Mary while she's betrothed to Jesus, but Elizabeth understands exactly what's taking place. And so Luke recounts for us the meeting of these two unexpectedly expectant mothers in verses um, 41 to 43, 39 all the way to 45. I'm just picking a couple. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby, that's John the Baptist, leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb, and why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? Now, I'm sure in this meeting of Mary and Elizabeth, the older 
cousin and the younger, there were days and possibly weeks of talk that goes on between expectant mothers, things that men are glad they know nothing about. (laughs) Things that I'm sure both of the women and Zechariah were glad that he was mute and temporarily deaf. So these two women just had like all the time in the world to talk about whatever they wanted and Zechariah was blissfully unable to participate or be aware. But these two women, just picture it, the older and the younger, miraculously filled with life. And they could share the burden and the joy of their pregnancies together without any interference in either their joy or their burden. And we have this context or setting established, the young Mary seeking out the older Elizabeth, both godly women, both seeking to follow the will of God in their lives, both rejoicing in the favor they've been shown, being able to receive counsel from each other, to be encouraged from each other, to worship and pray together. For Mary especially, the circumstances God brought into her life appear as a crisis to everyone around her. Not everyone could understand what had happened or what she was going through. Maybe not even her parents, because she doesn't stay with her parents. She makes a, about a 100-kilometer trek on mule and by foot to visit her cousin Elizabeth. So we don't know how her parents really responded to this. They seemed unable to be of assistance. But she had this shared experience and compassion with Elizabeth, and she leaned into that. We could ask ourselves, what about us? When, whether God brings blessing or challenge into your life, or as is quite often with Mary, God's blessing is also a crisis. At the same time, do you withdraw from Christian fellowship? Do you withdraw from wisdom while you struggle with what God's circumstances has put into your life in his, providences, in his providence? Or do you lean into it like Mary? Like Mary, do you say, I am amazed at what God has brought into my life. I can't comprehend what God has brought into my life. And so I am going to get some older, wiser, godly counsel. Do you lean into that? Would you make the trek 100 kilometers on foot? Your support and counsel is probably a lot more close at hand than Mary's was. But when you're either confident or confused, do you seek Christian counsel as Mary did? But finally, it's in this context of shared godly counsel, fellowship, and joy that we hear Mary's song, where so much of Mary's heart towards God is revealed. And we heard it read earlier, but I'll just read it again. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. Now, these words of Mary are often referred to as the Magnificat. It's taken from the first word of the verse as it's written in Latin. And I know you all know Latin, so you knew that. Magnificat, anima mea dominum. It's considered a song. It's certainly poetic. It resembles Hannah's song in uh, 1 Samuel 2, which I'm sure Mary knew Hannah's song. She would have most of the Old Testament memorized. 
And this text is the longest continuous text we have of Mary's own words. And it preserves for us the clearest picture of Mary and her heart and her knowledge of God and her knowledge of God's promises. Her, her understanding of God is not uninformed. It's not blind faith. She knows the promises that were made to Abraham and to his offspring. She understands the fulfillment that is taking place. Mary is theologically astute, make no mistake. But it's more than just the theological astuteness of Mary that I want to draw attention to this morning. There's many approaches to organizing and understanding the content of the Magnificat, and you could spend a few weeks on it, but for brevity and simplicity this morning, I just want to see that the song describes for us two different ways of coming to God, two different approaches to God, and these two ways are indicated by six words. There are three words that describe Mary's lowly way, and there are three words that describe a lofty way. And we will be left at the end of Mary's song to choose which way are we going to approach God. So first of all, Mary's lowly way. And the first word of Mary's lowly way in her song is humble. My soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. As I mentioned at the start, it's hard to write about Mary because she inevitably is deflecting attention away from herself towards God. The whole point of her Magnificat is that her soul magnifies or her soul makes much of God. Not that her soul can actually make God greater than he is. Nothing can magnify God. Nothing can make God greater than God is. But this word should be understood as Mary increasing her view of God in her soul. Her soul magnifies God. She intentionally increases her view of God. A telescope does not make a star any larger. A telescope makes the image of the star larger to us. And that is how Mary magnifies God. Not that she or any of our worship make God any greater, but in our souls we can better see God by magnifying him. Humility, it's often been said, is not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. And that's pretty much Mary. Mary is not denigrating herself, she's magnifying God. Mary's humility is not an abasement, but a steady and constant attention and focus on God. She rejoices in her Savior, the second indication of her humility there. Mary realizes that a Savior is needed, not just a Savior for her people Israel, but a Savior for herself personally. She needs a personal Savior, a personal rescuing. And without that humility, none of us can have saving faith in God. If you do not take the way of humility that Mary, and for that matter, Ruth demonstrated to us last week, then you cannot come to God in saving faith. The humble acknowledgement that we need to be saved and that he alone is able to save. If we don't think we need a savior, we will not have one. Jesus says, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. It's the humble, it is the meek who are blessed, and that's why Mary says, behold, from now on all generations will be calling me blessed. Mary understands that she's blessed. Not because of what she can do for God and has done for God, but because of what God has done for her. And she concludes her praise of God in verse 49, for he who is mighty has done great things for me. 
not what I'm doing for God. It's what he who is mighty has done for me, and holy is his name. So Mary's response is first rooted in humility, and that holy God would look on her, and that holy God would move his arm for her and do great things for her. And that holy God is looking on you and will move his mighty arm for you as we humble ourselves before him. The second word in Mary's lowly way is fearful. Verse 50, and his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. So just as there's an unhealthy humility that causes us to think less of ourselves, which is not what is meant by humility, to demean ourselves rather than to esteem others, there are also unhealthy fears. And we all know unhealthy fears. We have anxiety, doubts, a groveling submissiveness in order to avoid abuse. And that's not the kind of fear that Mary has or says that God rewards with mercy. In scriptures, the fear of God is a shorthand way of describing holy devotion or awe and reverence for the one who is rightly awesome. If healthy humility says that I have received more from God than I deserve, that God gives to me and I do not give to God, if that's what healthy humility says, then healthy fear says, God, you are holy and I am not. God, you are awesome and I am not. You are pure and I am not. You are righteous and I am not. God, you are in complete control and sovereign over everything and I am not. God, you are an immovable object and the entire universe is a very stoppable force in comparison. That's the fear of God. He's awesome and he's righteous and he's pure and he's absolutely sovereign. Amen. Well, Jesus also says in the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And it's Isaiah that draws the connection between humility or poorness in spirit and fear of the Lord. In Isaiah 66, he says, but this is not the one whom I will, for whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. You see the connection. Humility is connected very closely to our fear of the knowledge of God and who he is. Mary's lowly way is humility and awe before God. And the third word describing Mary's way is hungry. In verse 53, he has filled the hungry with good things. What hunger is Mary referring to? It could be physical hunger. Uh, Kind of like, uh, Pastor Paul, your sermon is in danger of going five minutes long, and now that you mention it, I am hungry. It could be that kind of hunger. I stopped and had a snack before I came here. All of you would take note of that. It's a good plan, just in case I do go long. But God is certainly able to fill our lives in any area that we lack. God is able to fill up all kinds of hungers. And you've heard us talk here at Lakeside about the many poverties that we all experience, or the many hungers is another way of putting it. There are many areas in our life in which we hunger, where we lack. But as with humility and fear, when we read hunger in Scripture, it's pointing towards something deeper. The kind of hunger many of you may experience most keenly maybe tomorrow morning. After the big breakfast is eaten, and after all the chocolates have been passed around for the third time, And after all the presents are opened and the room is scattered with the remains of the feast and the wrappings and the gifts, 
Some people at that particular time of the year sit back and feel the pang of hunger the most. We sit back and we look at all of that, and some asked, is this it? Is Christmas morning peak satisfaction? Am I supposed to be at my happiest at this point in the year? Everything's been building toward it since Black Friday. Warm wishes, good intentions, Christmas spirit, putting money in the kettle, plenty of food, a big pile of stuff. This is the most satisfied we're supposed to be, and it's exactly at that moment when many of us feel the pang of emptiness right when we're supposed to be the most satisfied. Isn't there something more? That's the hunger that Mary's talking about. What is it that you crave that just can't get satisfied in this world? To paraphrase C.S. Lewis, if nothing in this world is able to fully satisfy us, it's because we were made for something more than this world. Is that why none of this stuff seems to satisfy? Is that why we have cravings that never seem to fulfill? Maybe we're made to hope in something greater. Jesus says in the Beatitudes, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. So hopefully somewhere in your living room or your rec room or wherever you have the tree and the presents and all of the chocolates, you have a nativity scene sitting on a shelf. And so you can look past the paper and the tape and the tinsel, and you can put your eyes on the manger and hunger and thirst after the righteousness that only Jesus can offer you. That's the hunger that God wants to satisfy. That's what he wants to fill with good things, the good things that only Jesus has. This is Mary's way. This is the way of rejoicing and salvation, humility and fear and hungering after righteousness, and God will fill you. That's Mary's way. Well, what's the alternative way? Very briefly, I'll mention all three words at once, so it won't take long to cover them. The lofty way is in verses 51, 52, and 53 in order. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud. In the thoughts of their hearts, he has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He's filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. The proud, the mighty, and the rich. Those are the three ways of the lofty way. In contrast to the lowly way, the lowly way which receives God's favor and blessing and filling. The lofty way is the way of the proud and the mighty and the rich. And any who come to God on the terms of being proud or mighty and rich will find their situation utterly reversed from what they think they have. The proud think they can come to God on their own terms. And the term scattered here is interested in reference to the proud because when it says that God scatters the proud, it immediately, in my mind at least, brings up images of the Tower of Babel. Instead of spreading out over the earth as God instructed, mankind gathered together into one great city. And in that one great city, they declared that together they could build a tower to reach God on their own terms. It's really interesting there. It says that after they had been building this tower for who knows how long, it says God looked down upon the tower that they were building. (laughs) It's like, oh, you're doing something down there. That's not good. I don't really care about the tower. 
but what's going on in your hearts isn't a good thing. You're never going to come to me if that's what's in your heart. And so he scattered us so that we would actually obey his command to scatter across the face of the earth and be fruitful and multiply. And so God scatters the proud who try to make themselves gods, who try to sit on the throne that is God's throne alone. And speaking of thrones, in verse 52, the mighty who exalt themselves to that throne, God removes them from their high position and instead he lifts up the meek. And the rich, they think themselves full. They're satisfied with everything. They build barns, and when they fill those barns, they build bigger barns. But God sends the rich away empty. Jesus' rebuke to the church of Laodicea in Revelation 3 would be worthy of further study in that regard. He says to the church, You say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, Blind and naked. So we need to be careful, even as believers, that we don't start to think that we have everything we need and that we don't need God. Because Jesus says, this is how you really are. (laughs) Wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. And you know what? That's good news. Because you know who God came for? The wretched, the pitiable, the poor, the blind, and the naked. This is the category you want to be in. Because this is who God loves. This is who God lifts up. This is who God redeems. This is who God sent his son at Christmas to die for. Maybe you've been trying to relate to God on your own terms. Maybe you've been trying to relate to God on these terms. Too proud to be judged by God. Don't judge me, God. In fact, I'm going to judge you. I'm going to put you in the witness chair, and I'm going to ask you some questions, God, about whether you're really righteous or moral, or maybe too strong to admit that you're weak, or maybe too full of all the world has to offer to admit that your craving has never been satisfied and you're actually empty. But at 3 a.m. in the morning, you wake up and you stare at the ceiling, and that's the emptiness that God wants to fill. As I said at the beginning, as Protestants were historically wary of making too much of Mary, the Reformers saw the error that large parts of the church had fallen into by venerating Mary, by making her even a co-redeemer alongside Jesus, making her a dispenser of grace, roles and titles that the Bible does not give her, nor that I think Mary, I know Mary, would never accept. But at the same time, we should not make too little of Mary, The Gospels have preserved our knowledge of her. The Holy Spirit has put her example and her words into Scripture, and her example and her words are here for our instruction. So what are you taking away from Mary this morning? What path are you taking towards God? On what terms will you approach him and his son? How will you approach the child in the manger this Christmas? Will you approach Mary's lowly way and receive mercy, or will you attempt the lofty way and remain empty? So this morning, tomorrow, humble yourself before the manger, before the child, before the king. The angel said to Mary, God is giving you, Mary, God is giving you his son. And in response, Mary loved God and loved his son. And God says to the whole world, I am giving you my son. 
how are you going to approach him? Will you love him? Will he be your savior? As Mary loved him, as he was Mary's savior, so he should be ours. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you for Mary. Thank you that you chose her and bestowed on her, not through any merit of her own, but because you looked before the foundation of the world and said, my favor will be upon Mary in this particular way. And you look on us and you say, my favor and my blessing will be on these people in my particular way, their particular way. And so, Lord, when you bless us, when you bring the circumstances of our lives to that point where we need to decide, will we be overshadowed by the Lord Almighty and will we humble ourselves and say, let your will and your word be done? Will we trust in your word the way Mary did in the promises that you gave to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and the prophets and passed on to your church? And all promises are yes and amen in Jesus. Will we humble ourselves before your word and say, we are your servant? And we accept your son. We receive your son, just as Mary did. Humble and fearful, trembling and hungry for what only he can give to satisfy. A restoration of our relationship with you, forgiveness of sin, making us new creations. That's what we celebrate when he comes at Christmas. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.